Good morning. Welcome to Good Shepherd, where we are inviting all people into a living relationship with Jesus. If we've never met before, my name is Chris Thayer. I'm our pastor of discipleship. This sermon series has been great to be able to walk with you all through kind of that idea of how do we deal with anxiety and panic and worry when they intersect with our faith. It's been great to be able to walk through that sermon series with you. Today, we're actually going to be wrapping up the sermon series, looking at it a little bit differently from a different angle as we think about how do we respond to the anxiety and panic and worry and pain that's in other people's lives around us. So we're going to look at that. If you have your Bibles with you, that's great. You can open them up to the book of Job. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. The words are going to be up on the screen at just the right time. And we go through that effort to ensure that you are able to read Scripture for yourself because we do view Scripture highly here at Good Shepherd. And because we view Scripture highly here at Good Shepherd, there are a couple of things that we like to remind ourselves of virtually every week. And the first one is this. Even though this looks like a book, it's not a book. It's a library. It's a collection of 66 different books written by a number of different authors over a long period of time. And perhaps most importantly, it's in different writing styles. And that just simply helps us to remember to read scripture in context to read it the way that it was intended to be read, which honestly isn't always the way that we want to read and approach Scripture. The other thing that we like to remind ourselves of virtually every week, and you might not believe this yet, and that's okay. We simply want to let you know where we in leadership stand here at Good Shepherd. And that's that we believe that unlike any other book or any other library in the world, that this one is uniquely inspired, eternal, and true. And so whenever we read it together, we do this sort of odd thing where we lift it up. Not because we worship the Bible, we don't, but because we worship the God who inspired the Bible. And we want to show in a tangible way that we stand under his authority alone, and not our own. Amen? The other thing that I want to do before I say anything else is I want to go before that very God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. God, thank you that you are good. Thank you that the lion on the throne in heaven is bigger than any lion that would stand behind us. And so, Lord, I pray today that, that my words wouldn't be uh, wise or persuasive, but would be simply a demonstration of your Holy Spirit's power. Because, God, I, I, I am powerless without you, but because of you, I'm, I'm never helpless. So thank you for that reality. Lord, I pray for every single one of us in this space that you would wake us up to the presence of your Holy Spirit, that we would be changed people, that we would be more and more the kind of people, the kind of community that you're calling us to be because you are worth our pursuit. We love you, we praise you, we give you all that we have and all that we are. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen, amen. Well, one of, my, one of my favorite stories to tell from when my son was younger, when he was probably three or four years old, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but I know how it happened. We got into this really fun bedtime routine. You see, one day I, I looked back in the hallway after we had put my son to bed, and again, it was right around that age that he's starting to realize that not everybody's going to bed when he goes to bed, so maybe I'm missing out on something and so I looked back towards the hallway and I could see that his light in his bedroom was still on. 
So I go back to his bedroom and I said, hey buddy, it's time to go to bed. And he said, well, why is it time to go to bed? And I said, well, it's time to go to bed because it's dark outside. I said, well, why is it dark outside? Because the sun went down. Well, why did the sun go down? Because the earth rotated. Well, why did the earth rotate? And then I said, because of gravity and preempting any further questions, I said, and you know who made gravity right? He said, God made gravity. I said, that's right. Have a good night. See you in the morning. <laughs> now, I have a friend who's kind of like a physics nerd, and he had a little bit of quibble with me saying that the earth rotated because of gravity rather than saying it was the inertia created by the collapse of dust and gas under its own gravity at the creation of the world. But can we admit that as, as a Bible nerd, that was a pretty good response for my three or four-year-old son in those moments. We, we got into that bedtime routine, and we, we just, it's one of, the, one of those precious moments for me as a father that we had that time. And, and as I was thinking about this message in particular, I thought about the reality that, that it's not just kids who ask those why questions, is it? See, sometimes kids ask why questions because they want to delay going to bed, but more often than not, kids have a reputation for asking those why questions because it's an opportunity for them to be able to order the seeming chaos of the world around them from a trusted source. Because sometimes things in life just don't seem to make sense or you're not sure why things work the way they do, and so kids ask why questions all the time, and again, it doesn't stop, though, once you become an adult. When you become an adult, the questions are a little bit different. But we still ask those why questions. Sometimes it's those kinds of questions that we can ask our personal devices, like why is it so hot in Charlotte, North Carolina in July, and why is my air conditioner making that noise? And then a week later, why are air conditioners so expensive to replace? <laughs> so expensive. But so sometimes it's those questions that we can ask our personal devices, but other times it's those why questions that we can't ask our devices. Like you all have learned over the past several weeks, it's that why question that I ask of God. Why do I wrestle with anxiety and panic? Why is that something that I struggle with? And, and so many of you have been honest and vulnerable over the past several weeks with me, and, and you've admitted to me that you ask that same question. God, why do I wrestle with anxiety and panic? For others of you, it's, it's maybe not anxiety and the panic, but maybe it's, maybe it's depression. Why do I struggle with depression? And still others, it's why did I get that diagnosis or why did my loved one die? And we ask those serious why questions, and those are the kinds of why questions that we, we can't just open up Google and ask. Those are really questions that are directed towards God because he's the only one who can answer those kinds of questions that we ask. And, and one of the things that I've learned in my 12 years of being a pastor here at Good Shepherd is that one of the worst things that I can do is respond to those kinds of why questions when people ask them in my office. Now, I'm not talking about those why questions that are, that are kind of generic and removed, that you are stepped back a little bit from personal life, like why does evil exist or, or, or why does, did God set things up this way? Like I said earlier, I love talking about the Bible. I'm kind of a nerd in that way, and so I love having those kinds of conversations. 
So I'm not talking about those questions in particular. I'm talking about those ones that get particular. Not just why does evil exist, but why did this evil happen to me? Why, why, why? So often, we're tempted to answer those why questions when people ask them because our goal in our heart is to take away their pain. Sometimes we think that if we can answer those why questions for people, if we can order the chaos around them, that we'll bring them some kind of hope and some kind of healing. But as we're going to learn today from the book of Job, rather than bringing hope and healing, we actually bring hurt and harm. And it's not how God has called us to respond to the pain in other people's lives. Like I said, we're going to be in the book of Job today. And before we jump up into reading the book of Job, there's just a few things that I got to let you know about the whole book of Job. The, the first one is that the book of Job is about a man named Job. That's how the book got its name. And, and the book of Job is all about this man that the author lets us know is basically perfect. The author said that Job does everything right. He says he is a completely righteous man. And righteous is a a $5 church word that means in right standing with God. So Job is a man that does everything that God calls him to do. He's he's righteous, he's holy in, in every way, the author lets us know. You see, Job ensures that he obeys all of God's commands. And and, and the author goes so far as to say, not only does Job only ensure his own righteousness, but Job is so good that he actually ensures that his children are righteous as well. You see, he's got some adult kids, and his adult kids live in their their own homes, and, and his adult kids love to throw house parties. And he says, just in case anything unseemly happened at that house party the night before, the morning after, he makes sacrifices for his children, just in case, to ensure that they're righteous. You see, the author of, of, of Job is basically saying that Job is like Mother Teresa and Billy Graham wrapped up into one. He's this amazing man. Doesn't do anything wrong. Not only that, but Job is incredibly wealthy. Like, think Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Warren Buffett rolled into one wealthy. He's got innumerable animals. He's got all kinds of servants, all kinds of land, all kinds of family. He is unimaginably wealthy. And right after we learn all of this about the person of Job, right after we learn about how good he is and how wealthy he is, we then learned he had it all taken away from him. You see, Job, his children were murdered, and all of his land and animals were stolen and killed, and it even got so bad that he lost his own health. He was a ruined man. Job, actually, the author describes that his skin got so bad with boils on it that he had to take a rock and scrape away at his skin. Job was completely ruined. Now, the whole book, the whole book of Job is all about taking this idea called the retribution principle to task. The retribution principle is this idea that, hey, if you do what you're supposed to, you're going to be blessed. If you don't do what you're not supposed, if you do what you're not supposed to, then bad things are going to happen to you. It's basically like a Christian version of karma, okay? 
And the author of Job is saying that, hey, this whole idea that no matter what, that if you do things right, you're gonna be blessed, and if you don't do things right, things aren't gonna go well with you, that that isn't the way that the world always works. And that people have started to put their trust in this idea of the retribution principle more than they have the wisdom of God. And so rather than trusting the retribution principle, we need to trust the wisdom of God. So that's what the sort of the, the whole book of Job is about. But this side, there's a side story that takes center stage in the book of Job, which is going to be our topic of conversation today. You see, Job has three friends that, that come and visit him after he's been ruined. And, and we're going to skip over the time when we first meet Job's friends, and we're going to come back to it, and I promise it's going to make sense when we get there. But right before we, we jump into where Job's friends respond today, we're going to see how bad things were for Job. You see, Job had hit rock bottom after losing everything. And in Job chapter 3, it says this, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse, curse that day. Job is a broken man. And Job slips into a deep and dark depression when everything is stripped away from him. That's where Job is. That's the state of pain that he is in. And right after saying all of those things, right after we get a window into how, how, how strong Job's pain is, how deep it is, Job then starts asking those serious why questions that we talked about earlier. In verse 11, it says, why did I not perish from birth and die as I came from the womb? Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Why, 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 why? Job is broken. Job is hurting. There's chaos in the world around him, and he's saying, none of this makes any sense. Why is this happening? And again, these questions that Job is asking, these are questions that only one person has a response to, and that's God. But Job's friends Hear these questions that Job is asking, and it doesn't sit well with their understanding of how God works. It doesn't sit well with their understanding of how the world works. And so rather than than staying out of those questions, they step into them. They answer those questions, and in doing so, they step in it. (laughs) Here's what they say. Here's Here's what one of his friends, Eliphaz, says. In Job chapter four, verses six through nine, he says to Job, should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? 
As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. And then on to chapter 5, verse 17, which really wraps up everything he's trying to say. Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. You see, what Job's friends are saying is, hey, the, the way that the world works, Job, is that if you do what you're supposed to, you're gonna be blessed. And if you don't, then you're not. And look at the state that you're in, buddy. So the fault, the reason that the, all of this is happening lies squarely on you. This is God's discipline. So, so don't despise God's discipline. Listen to it. Change your ways. And, and all of their words sound wise. They sound smart. They sound like the way that things should work. The problem is, and we as the readers know, that none of it's true. Job didn't do anything to deserve what was going on. The author already let us know that he's basically perfect. So why is Job in this mess to begin with? And the friends try to come up with an answer and in doing so, they bring harm to their friend. This is how Job responds in chapter 6, verses 24 through 30. Job says, without a hint of sarcasm, he gives them the whole sarcastic response. The Bible's so interesting when we actually read it. Job says, teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? You mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend? Now, be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent, do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? Is there... Any wickedness on my lips, can my mouth not discern malice? Relent, do not be unjust, for my integrity is at stake. You see, what Job is saying is saying, hey, you guys are supposed to be my friends. You're supposed to be people who are coming to encourage me. That's why you came to begin with. But now, not only do I have to fight my circumstances, but I have to fight you. I've lost everything, and now you're trying to take away my integrity as well? Just think about it. Just pause for just a second, guys. Have I done anything wrong? And as clear as Job's response is, and as much as we as the reader know that the, why, that the friends are not speaking wisdom but are really speaking lies, as much as we know all of that, the reality is that this back and forth continues with Job's friends and with Job. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And Eliphaz and his two friends have some version of the argument, Job, it's your fault. You did something wrong, confess, and then maybe God will relent. And Job keeps saying, I didn't do anything wrong. And it gets so bad that in chapter 19, Job says this in verse one, starting in verse one, then Job replied, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God 
has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. Job says, I'm questioning God's job performance. And it's so interesting to me that the hero in the story of Job, the man of Job, is the one who questions God's job performance. You've heard it said from the stage so many times, it's amazing how self-secure God is, that he would allow inspired scripture that questions his own job performance. So Job is throwing up his hands in the air and he's really letting his friends know, these questions that I'm asking, these why questions that I'm asking to try to order this chaos of the world around me, guess what, friends? They're not for you. They are for God. I'm mad, I'm frustrated, and I'm shaking my fist at God. I am so aggravated, I'm so frustrated by what's going on. And God, in the middle of all of this, God would eventually respond to Job. Job asks all of these questions and and God gives him a response. And his response is, is both incredibly firm and kind. So God responds to Job, but, but what's most interesting to me today for our conversation is how God responds to Job's three friends. See, this is what happens after God responds to Job in Job chapter 42, verses seven through eight. After the Lord had said these things to Job, after he had responded to his problems that he was having with God, God said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Think about that for just a minute. God says to the three friends, you were trying to defend me. Job was shaking his fist at me. I'm not mad at Job. I'm mad at you. Whoa. And then in verse eight, so now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourself. Job isn't required to give a sacrifice. The three friends are. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. And then this is so, so important for us today. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. He repeats himself. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job have, as you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now, anytime, anytime an author in scripture repeats themselves that way, puts two of the same thing back to back, it should always be our our signal to open up our ears and to pay attention because he's trying to get us to understand something. And you know how earlier I told you that we were gonna go back to when we first met Job's friends and the whole story and that it would make sense? What the author is trying to do is he's trying to get his readers to understand something, to try to make a connection. And that connection, when he says, you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job have, that connection is bringing them all the way back to chapter two when we first meet Job's friends. And in chapter two, verse 11 through 13, before his friends ever responded to Job's why questions, we learn this. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, 
heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And this was a symbol of mourning in the ancient world, tearing their clothes and sprinkling dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And get this, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. The, the author is reminding us in chapter 42, you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has, bringing us all the way back to chapter two when they actually got it right, when they sat with him in the ashes and did not say a word. And when I step back from this whole story and I think about the reality that these three friends saw the pain in Job, they heard his why questions. They heard questions that were directed towards God and they decided that their role was to defend God. And that's when they got it wrong. But God is saying, hey, when you didn't say anything, when you just sat with your friend and mourned with him in the ashes, when you kept your mouth closed, that's when you got it right. When I step back from all of that, I can't help but realize this message, your friend's pain isn't a puzzle for you to solve. It's a place for you to sit. Your friend's pain isn't a puzzle for you to solve. It's a place for you to sit. See, God is saying to those three friends, hey, you tried to defend me. I'm big enough to defend myself. You don't need to defend me. Instead, I'm calling you to sit with your friend in the ashes, to mourn with them, to allow him to question my job performance. I'm okay with that. You should be too. Your friend's pain isn't a puzzle for you to solve. It's a place for you to sit. What does this have to do with our conversation about anxiety and worry? Everything. You see, the reality is when people walk through the pain of anxiety and worry or depression or any other pain, the reality is that the chaos of life surrounds us in those circumstances and we can't figure out what's going on. And so often in those kinds of situations, we raise our fist at God, we shake our fist at God and say, why? Why are we in this mess? Why did this happen? Why do I have to struggle with this? Why do I have to deal with this? Why did my loved one die? So often, those are the kinds of things that are bubbling up on the inside of us. But also, just as frequent as those questions arise are our attempts to answer them for people around us because we think we're helping. We think we're, trying, we're helping to order the chaos of our friends' lives. You see, this happens with anxiety all the time when somebody finally admits, when they bring out into the light that they struggle with or wrestle with anxiety or even its, its close cousin, depression. So oftentimes, people always seem to have an answer. Well, if you did this different, if you did that thing, then it would go away, or you struggle with it because of this or because of that. And all that does is it retreats those people back into the darkness. And, and the truth is that all pain, whether it's anxiety or depression or mourning or grief, 
they thrive, they feed on the darkness. And when you bring them out into the light, they start to shrivel and die. And so when our friends bring out these problems and we respond for God to a question that was never asked of us, what we're doing is bringing them all kinds of pain and we're causing it to retreat back into the darkness where it continues to grow instead of being healed. Your friend's pain isn't a puzzle for you to solve. It's a place for you to sit. You know, what I said earlier, one of the places that I've learned to, to not answer this is, is in my role here as a pastor at church and when those kinds of questions, those kinds of why questions get asked in my office, but you know where I still struggle with this and, and sadly I get it wrong more often than not? It's in my own home. It's when my wife comes home from work and she's struggling with something. Or maybe she's dealing with something that's going on inside of her own life and she asks those kinds of why questions. Instead of just sitting and listening to my wife, instead of saying, hey, I'm sorry, that really stinks, tell me more, Instead of just sitting and praying for her and allowing God to respond to the questions that, that she's asking that only he can answer, instead I jump in and try to solve it right away. I try to fix it. The reality is I'm putting myself in a position in my wife's life that is not mine. The only one that can solve my wife's pain is my heavenly father. When I try to solve her pain, I end up bringing nothing but more pain and more heartache and causing that to retreat back into the darkness. My wife's pain isn't a puzzle for me to solve. It's a place for me to sit. Where is it for you? Where have you started to treat your friend's pain or your family member's pain as a a puzzle for you to solve? instead of a place for you to sit? Where have you, have you, you made their, their happiness or, or their solving of whatever it is that's going on in their life? Where have you made it your mission to, to fix that thing? Where have you put yourself in the place that only God can fill? And where instead of trying to provide them answers, you simply need to provide them with presence. To be the embodiment of our Savior in their lives at that time. And you know what's amazing about that? When we take the pressure off of ourselves to be God in other people's lives, it's incredibly freeing. It's freeing for them because they're allowed to vent their frustration at God. It allows God to speak in his appropriate time. And it also allows us to recognize that it's not our job to fix that. God's big enough to do that. Our friend's pain isn't a puzzle for us to solve. It's a place for us to sit. And I guess one of the places that I'm really hoping we not only embody this individually, but also corporately, is that we would be a community that allows people to bring their pain into the light where it can start to shrivel and die. Instead of being forced back into the darkness. I, I think I mean something like this. A number of years ago, I went on a pastoral visit with Talbot, and it was sort of a, a gut-wrenching 
a, a pastoral visit. They, they had lost a loved one and it was just incredibly painful. And I remember sitting in their living room across from this family. And as we're listening to them vent their pain, Talbot looked at them and he said, hey, I just wanna let you know that a, that a whole lot of people are getting ready to say some really hurtful things. A whole lot of people are getting ready to say some really hurtful things. And I thought, what's, what's this about? And then he went on to explain, he said, hey, when somebody deals with a loss like this, when somebody deals with a lost one like this, so often people try to step in and explain why it happened. They, they try to give an answer for God, they try to defend God. They'll say things like, well, God just needed another angel. No, people don't become angels when they die and God doesn't need anything from us. Don't pin this on him. Or, well, it must just be better for that person to be with the Lord than to be here with us. Yeah, to be away from the body is to be home with the Lord, but when somebody's going through that kind of grief and that kind of pain, in their mind right then, the best place for their loved one to be is in their arms. And ever since that day, ever since that pastoral visit, I've had this hope for us as a community that we could be authentic and vulnerable with one another in the midst of our pain and that we would respond in such a way that we wouldn't try to provide answers, but we would sit. And in doing so, we would have an atmosphere in our community where people can bring their pain into the light, where it can shrivel away and die, in the light of Jesus, our matchless King. So would we not treat our friend's pain as a puzzle to solve, but as a place to sit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a good God who cares for us and loves us. And Lord, thank you that we don't have to respond for you because you're big enough to respond for yourself. God, I pray that we would walk in light of the lesson that Job teaches us, that we would not treat our friend's pain as a puzzle to solve, but instead a place to sit and I pray that when we do speak, that it wouldn't be to speak answers that only you can give, but instead to speak the matchless name of Jesus, who is the hope that we have. In his name we pray, amen.